Released on Tuesday, April 12th, 2016. This Agile Life, episode 108. The Empathy Toy. The software industry transforms more and more every day. Agile methods are quickly replacing traditional ones. The question is, are you agile enough? This podcast is devoted to agile and lean software development. Time to welcome your agile coaches on This Agile Life. Hello, everyone. I'm John Sextro. Joining me on this episode of This Agile Life, we have Lee McCauley. Hey, John. How's it going? It's going really good, Lee. How's it going for you? I am going well. I'm having fun learning Scala at the moment which is probably about a two years behind where I should have, but you know, it's cool. Cool. Also joining us this episode back from uh, a period of time away from the show. Cause he's so busy. Jason Tice. Hey John, how are we doing? It's great to be here. And um, it's good to hear. It was great to hear a few episodes come out while I was uh, away. So, um, and I look forward to our conversation this evening. Indeed. And I look forward to it as well. And tonight we're going to be talking about, an Agile Technical Conference. What is, Jason, an Agile Technical Conference? Well, so the Agile Technical Conference, that was something that we was just held down in Raleigh, North Carolina in April 2016. And it was the first conference that the Agile Alliance has sponsored that was really focused on technical practices. So they actually made a heat map, which, which we'll put a link to this. Um, we'll put a link to the conference website in the show notes, because that was kind of how they defined the program where things like Scrum and like the Scaled Agile framework or how to scale Agile were explicitly not allowed on the program. So instead, they focused on things like continuous integration, uh, refactoring, how to write clean code, uh, mob programming, things like that. Again, really hands-on keyboard activities, really focusing on the technical aspects of really what it takes for an Agile team to be successful. Sounds like you're talking about really engineering practices. Yeah, I mean, one of the things where I will just share, I was amazed, and this is something that definitely, it got some tweet traction at the conference, was watching Jim Shore test drive JavaScript and CSS development uh, using using test-driven JavaScript in six different browsers at the same time. That sounds insane to me. Well, it is insane, but it just goes to show that if you're building a if you're building a web app, the complexity of how you have to go about supporting CSS to make sure it renders effectively in all the browsers. And to uh, Jim's credit, he is doing that with a TDD methodology he has developed to develop your CSS in a test-driven manner. Something that you know, to his credit, something that I know I've talked about with Craig is guess what. Jim, or actually, I believe he goes by James. He he was struggling with this in real life, and so he took it upon himself to say, "You know what? I'm going to build my own testing framework for this, so I can effectively write tests for CSS in six different browsers at the same time." So it, it goes back to saying that if you want to solve a problem using a framework, yes, there may be some upfront investment to build that framework, but I mean. <laughs> It was just amazing to see how he did that, and it was a it was an awesome session to watch. And I was like, "Wow!" Uh, and it really again lead to your point about learning Scala. It's like I know a little bit about CSS, but I've really never focused on that because the firm I work for, we have front end engineers that typically sit with our dev teams, and they they take on a lot of the CSS and front end work for on behalf of the team. And so I've I've never had to jump in there before. So it was interesting to see someone do that at that level of skill. That's pretty impressive. I mean, I've uh, I've had to deal with uh, multiple browsers and and how it renders and how JavaScript works and the whole bit all in in uh, you, and you tend to go with one one browser while you're developing and then you will have to jump over to another browser at some midpoint during the development process when you think it's working on one, then you jump in and fix it on another and uh, and that's that's hellacious. So I would love to see him uh, see yeah. that demonstration. Well, the other thing too is it gets to kind of the what I would say. Another theme of the conference is really talking about you know, and it's a theme that I liked hearing a lot about. Was talking about governance, and you know, the whole idea of like if you're developing an API, you know, you've got to assume that people are going to take your API and use it to do all kinds of stuff that you have no idea with, and 
really this idea that once you push a new API out there, you deploy it once and you just let it run forever. Like you, you don't ever say you're going to end of life it and force your users to upgrade. The same thing goes for browsers. I mean, we have evolved, especially if you're building really anything that's consumer facing or public facing, but I'm even going to say for internal apps, we are we have moved beyond the idea of saying this app was designed to work in Firefox version X. You don't do that anymore. You actually should say, no, I'm going to support all the modern web browsers. And by that nature, guess what? All the modern web browsers don't work exactly the same. So if you want to do some, you know, some really cutting edge stuff, you're going to have force yourself to do a little bit of extra work there to provide a good user experience across all those platforms. So Jason, is the is this Agile Technical Conference, is this the first time this is being held, this conference? Yeah, it was the first time, and I think the the I was I wasn't on the the committee. I got invited to to do a little activity, kind of a I want to say halfway through the planning process, which we can talk more about that later. But the the goal here was to try to recreate an experience that the Agile Alliance had gotten some data that people had stopped going to the large Agile conference because it didn't have a lot of technical content. Now. I think that's an ex- I think that's an excellent observation, and I'm glad to see somebody uh, act on this information because it has been seeming the past few years conferences are really trending. The agile conferences are really trending more and more towards the agile co- coach, towards the scrum master, towards the people, the non-technical uh, disciplines within an agile team. And I'm glad to see us refocusing around uh, some of these technical and engineering practices because those are so very important and they've been overlooked, I think. Well, but, but see, here's what I'm going to say. Being, having been on, been involved with the Big Agile Conference for a couple of years now, we have a technical program, which it's not like we don't have a technical program and technical tracks at the Big Agile Conference. It's just for whatever reason, a lot of people... Even people that submitted content to that, people said they, I guess some of the technologists said they didn't want to go to a conference with a bunch of non-technical people running around. The challenge I have with that is, is that creating too much friction on a team when there's the technical people and then there's the one, there's the people that are lesser, maybe they're not technical at all. You know, the fact that we have to have two separate conferences for that, is that a symptom of a larger problem? Let me ask you a question um, that I think will uh, piss off some people uh, because, hey, that's what podcasts are for. Exactly. Uh, anyway, so if you've got a coach that's guiding a technical team, shouldn't they at least have gotten a background in the technical areas to be able to coach them appropriately? I think in a perfect world, Lee, that's, that's a true, I would say yes. That, that's the desired state. Hell yes. I, do you see, I say hell do you yes. you see a lot of, yeah, I mean, but do you see a lot of coaches out there that are not, uh, have never been technical, they've just learned, they've gone to, to, to the scrum classes or they've gone to some other agile group and they've got their certification and they're trying to make money off of it, but they've never actually been on a, on a team and to do, to do technical work. Yeah, but but to be fair, I think I think, and I know it's kind of I'm kind of the outcast here because you know, admittedly, I do more work on the business side in my current focus. So it was kind of again, it was interesting for me to wind up at the technical conference myself. But yeah, but let's I, be honest, Tice. You can uh, you can actually uh, hang with the technical people. I've seen yes, you I know. At work, I did. And your brain, your brain switches. Your brain switches, yeah. and you're fine. Yeah, I did Bob program with Llewellyn Falco and Arlo Belshi and a bunch of so yes, and I was saying I need to tell Amos. Amos would be proud of me. I did I I wrote Java code at the technical conference. Anyways, so here's where I was gonna say, Lee, is one of the things um the second keynote at the conference was Bob Martin. And Bob Martin did his presentation on the future of programming. And I, I refer to it as that because I believe he's doing that at several conferences this year. I believe he's actually doing it uh, at Agile Indie, which is actually going to be the, it's also April 2016. It's actually the tomorrow, the day after we're recording this. But his remarks, I believe, will be somewhat similar. One of the things he talks about is how, as software professionals, we need more rigor and discipline. And in particular, really back, 
you know, when software got started, he talks about how programmers were taken from other fields where many times they had learned elements of rigor and discipline from their work as mathematicians or physicists or engineers before they became programmers. So back then, you could give people a problem. You could say, hey, can you get this done in three months? And they could say, well, we'll try and we will track to a deadline. And one of the things Bob Martin proposed is that early on, early developers had that discipline. As we've as the software profession has grown, we've lost some of that discipline because people come in, they've never, they haven't had another job. They they don't know what a deadline is. And then consequently, they can't make a deadline that, that allows us to run a business. So where I'm going, long answer to your question, Lee, is that someone on the team needs to provide that viewpoint. If that happens to be a scrum master who is not technical, but understands how to work with the team to help them make effective deadlines that they can all work to and that don't imprison the team, somebody needs to do that. Ideally, the whole team learns to do that together, but maybe it takes a non-technical scrum master or a coach to inject that into the environment so they learn that. Mm, That sounds like heresy to me. Really? Why don't why don't we just go in and uh, and go back to project managers or something and Gantt charts well, and and well, uh, deadlines and and that's what that's what Gantt charts and project managers are really good at doing is imposing bullshit deadlines and then trying to drive people towards those. Well, but here's the thing. I think it comes down to where plus I'll share where I think I see a lot of the non-technical coaches and scrum masters going wrong. And that is that they don't they don't provide autonomy and really respect to the team to do the work they need to do. So it's almost like, you know, if you're starting out on a project, maybe you set a deadline of a month to try to get something done. But, you know, if it, if you if you're a weekend and you're like, oh, my goodness, we just started and we found this whole API that we thought we could just consume. And you know what? It turns out the API only provides half of the functionality that we thought it did. So we're going to have to figure out how to get the other data because the API is incomplete. And that changes our deadline. A good scrum master or project manager will say, oh, my goodness, that's a problem. I understand it. I support you. I trust you. Let's figure out what a compromise is together, and then let's present the plan back to the business. I see a lot of more novice scrum masters. They'll say, no, 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 no. We made a commitment to the business. Our scope is fixed for the next month. We have to hit it. And that's if, if that's what's going on, that's where the non-technical coach or scrum master is not respecting the technical viewpoint that they don't have themselves, but instead needs to be represented on the team. Does that make sense? Lee, is that what you were driving at with your comments? Well, kind of, I think that I don't want to paint anybody with a, with a broad stroke here and say that, Oh, if you, if you never have technical experience, then you can't possibly help the team. Of course not. That's not uh, where I was going with it, but I think you're more likely to do what Jason was talking about which is not trust the team or uh, misrepresent the team, thinking, not doing it maliciously or anything like that, but just mistakenly. And uh, if you don't have the, the technical background on it, and that's, that's really my only worry, uh, is that you're more likely to, to do the things that uh, really mess up the team if you don't have the background. Yeah, well, the other one I'll just share that was probably one of my favorite sessions I had a chance to sit in was, and this is one that is out there on YouTube. Uh, when I because I spoke to Fred George, who he did his session on what he calls programmer anarchy, and I believe there's a couple YouTube videos of it out there from him at other conferences. He actually shared it's not it's not one of his newer talks, but the program for the Agile technical technical conference was done by invitation this year, so. I believe he was invited to share that talk specifically because he goes on. He's very open to say that, you know, all the roles that that Scrum says, uh, you don't need them. And basically, he tells the story that in all the companies he supported, they have evolved to really just having uh, business people and programmers. And he actually had some great theories to say that uh, and he was formerly with ThoughtWorks. And so he had a great story about how um, I believe it was Martin Fowler wanted to have the iteration manager, which is a ThoughtWorks role, and how he said that that was the dumbest thing ever. So that was hilarious to hear that story from his perspective. But he uh, he goes on to say that many of the agile practices are actually symptomatic of 
really bloating the agile community. And if we simply focus on writing good code and writing, doing something to test it so we can release it quickly, that, you know what, a lot of the need to have all these agile, these other agile practices goes away. And his presentation had like where they, he would light up this big list of agile practices and he would X them all out because he said, you know, because we focused on empowering people, letting people work together to solve problems. And really from the business side, letting the business give the teams autonomy to work and solve the problems the best way possible and trusting them if they needed a little more time, they were able to get rid of all these things that, you know, many of us really focus on as coaches, especially from a non-technical perspective. That's fair. Jason, what were the hot topics at the, at this conference? What were, what are the technical, the people from the, with the technical backgrounds, technical disciplines, what were they hunger, hungry for? in this conference? What did they want to attend? What were the best attended sessions? Well, I think, I think from a technical perspective, there was a lot of focus on really the technical side of what DevOps is. So there were quite a few sessions where people talked about how do you provision standard environments using some element of a scripting language? So things and or a product. I mean, some people showed like there were, I know there was a Cloud Foundry session that that they showed off how to do, you know, uh, platform based deployments in the Cloud Foundry and really how to develop 12 factor apps. But then also there were other, you know, abilities to show outside of a specific platform tool like Cloud Foundry or Azure. How could you use a scripting language? And there's a few of those out there that allow you to write a, a, a platform agnostic script that can work with any of the commodity cloud providers. So, so there was a big emphasis on that. Uh, interesting thing I thought happened. This is a personal statement I'm going to throw out there. I, I brought this up at a few of the Lean Coffees was Lori Williams was there and she, uh, she gave a presentation that was very well attended. That was, what have we learned in the first 20 years of working at, of doing pair programming? And the profound statement I think she said, which I thought was interesting, and you guys will find this interesting, is she said that when she went to prepare for the talk, one of the things that she looked back on was her book. And she said that based upon what she wrote in her book, I believe nearly 20 years ago, there isn't a need to write a second edition. Meaning that the stuff, the guidance she provides in her book, she believes is still valid. My question is, what do you guys think about that? What is it that she provides? I, I haven't read the book. So she writes, the, her book is basically, uh, it, it's, it's a good step-by-step guide. And it's funny, I've read it about five years ago. I haven't read it recently. So, uh, it, you know, but it, 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 it talks about the science, kind of the human factors. And then also it really explains her recommendations and it has some good pairing techniques, like how to introduce pairing to your team and how to get started in a pretty, a pretty easy to consume manner. So none of that crazy one-hour pair switch stuff that Amos talks about. But you, you get what I'm saying. Let me let me ask you this question, and Lee, I'd also and if be. Not, I have, well, if not, I have a hypothesis too that I'll share. But I'm curious what you guys think first. Uh, so I'm going to ask this question. I'd also be interested as to what Lee thinks about the assertion that after 20 years, or however long this book has been out, that there's no need for a revision to to the book. And my question to you guys then is why aren't we doing this in 100% of all agile projects around the globe? So um, first off, I'll have to echo what you said, John, which is, I haven't read the book. Uh, unlike Jason who reads everything. Um, or at so least the I'm first two pages. So he can say he read some of the book. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Jason. Um, Sorry, so, I read your book. So I, I don't really know uh, what all she uh, uh, she advises there, and uh, so I think the the more the broader question that I think you're trying to get at though is uh, why haven't we learned anything new about pair programming, at least, or how was it that she was so spot on the first time? Am I am I am I getting that right? I think so, and uh, but a little bit more. Uh, my my real point is, if it's so perfect, if incarnation one was so perfect of the book, and assuming that the the masses have have read and consumed this book, why why isn't it one hundred percent or eighty percent employed across agile projects? I think it's probably twenty percent employed across agile projects. If it's if it's so perfect, 
if her advice is so perfect and I'm not taking a shot at her and I really just want to get at no. a deeper issue as to why aren't more teams doing pair programming. Well, that's what I was going to say, John, is I think my, my hypothesis is I think it's interesting that we could say we've been doing pair programming for actually, I think it was 10 years. I have to look at the, the, uh, the, the subject of her talk, but we've been doing pair programming for a period of time. And I think it just goes to show that we really haven't studied it. Like people, I think, say, oh, I'll try it for a week. Oh, we didn't like it. It was weird. You know, I felt, you know, one of the things she talked about is how, you know, it really is like you feel truly exposed because, wow, dude, I had no idea how to refactor that method. And Lee just showed up and did it in two minutes. Boom. Or, hey, I had no idea how to write a test like that. And John popped the test out. Boom. Like that. And that's that makes you feel very vulnerable. So I, but I, I hear I, you. I hear you saying all of the reasons why I should pair because I learn things because I discover new things because I become a better programmer and I I'm forced to deal with some of my vulnerabilities and I'm much more productive. And I think that people that don't understand productivity with pair programming are the non-technical people that sit back and just think that it's two people doing the job of one person. So there's two important things you just said there. One uh, at the very end, uh, I want to point out because it goes back to one of our our big things that we harp on all the time, which is people are not resources, and you can't just count up the people or the uh, the amount of hours that people are spending on something and equate that to uh, to productivity. Um, it, there's a lot more to it than that. The other thing is that you pointed out is that it's all about your attitude towards it, right? So um, I find that in places that aren't doing pair programming, those are also the places that don't actually, that the people there uh, are not rewarded as a team. They're rewarded as individuals. Um, they're, they're the same thing with punishment and uh, raises and promotions. It's all a competitive atmosphere where if, uh, to foster an atmosphere where uh, and a culture where pair programming is is used all the time uh, and where people are fine with it, you have to be rewarding the team for for accomplishments and where nobody, even if they if they screw up, it's still the team that screws up and nobody looks at that other member and gets mad at them. Um, they go, okay, well, we need to do better next time. And this is this is how we we messed up, right? And so not all, yes, you're you're put on uh, the spot and you are vulnerable, but you're only vulnerable because the entire team is vulnerable. So you're not alone, and that's the difference I think between teams or places where pair programming is used a lot and pair programming is is uh, is not used. It's all about how the the company rewards or discourages it. Yeah, and Lee, I think that's that's guidance that is mentioned in Lori's book, but I think that falls when people when people when I hear a lot of people talk about pair programming, I hear them emphasize all of the team level aspects which are very beneficial to the team and the story I don't hear enough of is you do need to ensure that this practice is introduced in accordance with an organization structure and an organizational culture for learning that supports it. And if your organizational culture is not set up that way because of performance reviews or managerial structures or whatever, um, HR mandated feedback loops that go against the grain of a self-organizing team, it is not going to work. And I think the interesting thing is that we haven't studied pair programming enough at that level to where you could go back and write a second edition of, of Lori's book or someone could publish a research paper to say that, well, here's where we've studied where pair programming has been effective and here's where we've studied it and it hasn't been effective. And here are the root causes that are substantial, that are supported by data as to why. And I think many of what you're saying, Lee, is hypotheses would be revealed. I mean, if and the three of us have all done work out in as part of agile transformation where we have been asked to help introduce pairing in multiple environments where we went against the grain of the organizational structure so 
I just think that this goes to it. many of the many of the themes I've heard in the last few years at conferences where some of these there, there is an opportunity to really take a little bit more of a research method to some of the practices we're, we're, we're exploring and really learn more by conducting experiments where maybe our goal is not for the experiment to succeed, which is what we always want to happen. But maybe the goal of the experiment is for it to fail because if it fails, we get a, we, we get a, an experience of, we know it doesn't work because of this factor. So rather than knowing why it does work, we do, we have a, we have data to support the null hypothesis. And I think that we're just getting started. We simply haven't done all this research. Does that make sense? So who do you think would be doing this research? I mean, because in a lot of cases, we would look to universities to do research, right? And I'm not sure that universities are really in a position to do this kind of research for the most part. Um, and I know from past experience that they have no idea what what true uh, agile and, to be honest, true software development is really like in, in the real world. So I'm yeah. not sure that yeah. I would trust them. Well, you're, you're right. And that was actually something that it came up after Bob Martin's keynote was they actually had a conversation. Someone asked a question about why would the Agile Alliance ever get more involved in providing a suggestion as to what should be in computer science curriculums? And this was based upon some of Bob Martin's comments that really the computer science programs don't do the right thing in terms of preparing professionals to go into the software workforce. And more so than in other academic fields, I mean, Lee, you can comment on this from your background, is that there is a perception that once you go into the professional field as a computer science person, you do not go back to academia because you become corrupt. <laughs> and unlike other fields where they want you to go out, work in industry, and then come back and be on faculty, like especially like a business school, or like when I went to business school, like everyone had worked somewhere to come back. And that was like the retirement job. That is not how CS works, but because of that, some of the stuff they're teaching in CS curriculums doesn't prepare people for what they need to do on day one of their real life job, which is just dumb. I so, mean, what do you so think about was, that, Lee? Here was my experience with it, at least at the university I was at. So the beginning level computer science classes were often taught by uh, assistant professors. Um, these were essentially uh, people that. Uh, had not yet gotten tenure. Uh, they were they were full professors from that perspective. Uh, they weren't like adjuncts or or visiting professors or anything like that. But they were just teaching one on one sort of classes, right? And then there was this medium level where you actually got deep into a language, or it was a or is a very uh, specific uh, application of a language uh, in a particular area. And those might actually be taught by adjunct faculty, often from uh, local uh, businesses. I was in Memphis, so we actually had people from FedEx, for example, who taught some of our classes. Um, and we loved those people, but those people would never come back and want to be a professor full time because they don't make enough. And professors have to go out and beg for money constantly. And that's not what those people are in for. They want to. They want to do technical stuff. So it, we, we love to have uh, faculty that had actually been in business, but that doesn't mean we could get them. Yeah. Well, Puzzway, one other thing, and we kind of pivoted the conversation. My, my apologies. We kind of, John, do you want to say anything else about Perry? Do you want to go into something else? I would like to find out a little bit more about DevOps from you, Jason. But before we... Before we go into that and find out what was the hot topics of conversation revolving around DevOps, I would like to uh, take a moment to do a listener call out. And if you guys have been listening to the show recently, you know that each episode now we're taking a moment to thank one of our community members. And I'm going to do that right now. So if you've listened to more than a few of our more than 100 episodes, you know that we don't often read commercials on the show. And this episode's no different, but I'd like to take a moment to thank all of our supporters that have joined us on our Slack channel. Jason and Lee are out there every day responding to people, having conversations with people, talking about things like pair programming and DevOps. And on our Slack channel, we love to talk about these things and more with our supporters. I also want to personally thank one of those, supporter, one of those supporters, Mr. Urban Hafner. Urban started supporting the show back in September 2015, 
Urban, thank you for your support. We feel honored that you listen to the show. If you want to join Urban and the rest of the folks in our Slack channel, go to thisagilelife.com slash community. And since we started doing this, guys, we've had a number of new people sign up, and it's going to be very challenging for us to keep in front of the power curve in terms of mentioning a person every episode. I might have to kick it up a notch and start doing maybe two or three people per episode. So that's our call to action. Go out there to thisagilelife.com forward slash community and check that out. We'd love to have you in our Slack channel. Jason, I would like to get back to the topic of DevOps because that seems in the past two or three well, years to be the, the flavor of the month and the technical ranks of all of the Agile projects is everybody wants to talk about DevOps and the Phoenix Project book and everything that goes along with that. So why do you think that DevOps was such a hot topic at this technical conference? I just think that that's where there's been... To link back to one of the things I was going to say about, about pairing. One of the interesting theses that Bob Martin shared in his um, in his keynote was that he he did this timeline about evolution of stuff, like uh, and really saying that all of the technical things that we use in our craft, like functional programming, object oriented design, and like like even basic language syntax that was you know created with like Fortran. That all dates back to really the late 60s and 1970s. And since then, there has been very little innovation in the software space. Would you guys agree? I mean, what's some, what is some new software thing or way to write code that has evolved since then? I don't know. I think there is not. I think that's fair. I, I, I can't well, think of anything that's been earth shattering or groundbreaking. Yeah. Well, and again, just a level set for those that weren't there and that haven't heard this future of programming keynote. He level set that against what has occurred that he claimed, and I would agree myself, is highly innovative in the hardware space where even though we've, you know, we've outlived Moore's law for the purpose of the CPU speed, think about your, your iPhone where it has over a trillion transistors in it, and yet it's small enough to hold in the palm of your hands, has a trillion transistors, and runs off a battery for, you know, 10 hours a day doing kind of whatever you want to do to it. So, um, and probably has, you know, an, a, a lot of storage in it. Who knows? I mean, at least, I don't know. When will an iPhone have a terabyte in it? Probably sometime in the next year, I'm going to guess. So, which, that's pretty innovative if you figure that, you know, really... The last 40 years, we were, uh, we, we were using vacuum tubes, and now we have a trillion transistors in an iPhone that runs on a battery for 10 hours, and that's, that's pretty phenomenal. Would you agree? So I think to get back to your, your question about DevOps, I think DevOps is one of those technical areas which does impact how you write code where we have seen phenomenal innovation. And I think what it is is it's a lot of this hardware-based innovation, which is now having a softer flavor to it. And since it has a softer flavor to it, it's available to be consumed by software developers. Make sense? What do you mean by there's a softer flavor to it, Jason? Okay, so I go back to a real-life episode of This Agile Life. I don't know the number, but it was the one when, John, you and Craig and Amos talked about building agile infrastructure in your data center. Do you sure. remember that one? Oh, yeah. And you had this crazy story about thin vertical slice where you were going to put one rack in and one blade in, and you were going to power the one rack and the one blade. And okay, I agree that would work. But if you've ever done a data center build up, that's not typically how it goes down. You do all the racking, all the power, all the cooling. Then you start loading blades in because it makes sense for it to work in batches. What I think where DevOps comes into this is now you, John, as a dev, you can build a runtime environment just like you were trying to talk through on that episode using code. So since you manage your infrastructure and code, hey, spin up a little sandbox for me because this app that I'm deploying, I think is small. So I can basically request that that environment be provisioned. It's provisioned to a to a, I'm just going to call it a cloud environment. We can talk if you want to talk about details of that, but it's provisioned to a cloud. I pay for what I use and I can start to kick the tires on it. 
And right off the back, if I find out that when I start to run my load test, it doesn't work, I could do something about it and I can make those changes in software. And that's very accessible to you as a developer. Does it make sense? It's the commoditization of computing resources to the to the ultimate degree where you don't care about where anything lives. You just uh, you have the ability to spin up these whatever these cloud computing resource resources are, uh, probably at the most granular level being like virtual machines and that sort of thing. And you don't have to worry about so much the hardware anymore. It's just infinitely scalable out there. Nobody yeah. worries about stacking, racking, plugging things in, running cables and whatnot. Well, this way, infrastructure engineers do somewhere. Somebody somewhere has got to build the data center that runs the cloud. Yeah, but okay? we don't, we don't have to cloud. worry about those concerns anymore. Yeah, but what it should be, and again, if you're listening to us, the expectation that you should be looking for in your organization or you should ask for is if you have to go fill out a ticket. Like So so you suppose you're going through this scenario where your build box gets slow, right? Has anyone ever been where your build box got slow? You are trying to practice the sacred XP practice of the 10-minute build. So if the build ever goes, you know, if the build ever takes longer than 10 minutes, make it go faster so you get fast feedback. So an example of why DevOps is popular. If you're in an organization where you have to go fill out a help desk ticket and ask a system administrator to build you a new box or change the configuration of your environment on your behalf, you need to demand better. And what you should demand is say, hey, give me give me an API that as a developer, I can code to and I could say, hey, it's, I want to change the configuration of my build environment via the API. So instead of one core, it has two cores or however your infrastructure has been provisioned. And you should be as a developer, John, you should be able to do that in a self-service manner. If I'm the ops guy, a couple things. Number one you should have a subset of managed environments and configurations. So we don't want it to get out of control because then everyone's unique. But at least with this, if I'm going through an API, you know what? All of those APIs are audited or they're auditable. So if I've done that and I've used scripts that I can put into a repo to 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 interact with an API, guess what? I can audit that and I can I don't have snowflakes because I can reproduce in accordance with the API my, my infrastructure. So these are the things that as a developer, you should be looking for in your environment. And really, again, on the ops side, that's what the whole DevOps convergence is driving. Does that make sense? Sure. And th this sounds like, uh, to me, this is only one leg of maybe a multi-legged uh, approach to or definition of what DevOps is. I mean, this is this is kind of the sexy side from the developer's perspective with the concept of DevOps, what developers have wanted forever is to control, uh, to control their own destiny with, with where their stuff runs, to control their own destiny with deployments, uh, provisioning, standing up new environments, et cetera. And, and now we finally have that. And that's, that's cool. That's sexy to developers. But what about what about the other aspects of DevOps that I think are getting ignored in these conversations, particularly around sustainability of the of the environments, uh, as well as the the kind of dirty little stepchild of all of this, which is production support, production operations, and dealing with with failures, dealing with bugs that occur and then responding to those issues uh, that had previously maybe been farmed out to some sort of support organization. Well, so a couple of things about that, like for, for your issue about infrastructure, uh, it was said in multiple sessions, DevOps best practice. You want to call it this? Uh, well, we could, we could sure make some best practices, John. When you deploy, you deploy to new infrastructure every time. So this idea, so there's no idea of, hey, let's let's take the old application file off the application server and put a new one out there. No, you reconstitute or you constitute a new environment from the baseline up. You put your new content on it, and what you let you do is you could then do a rollover deployment. So you could have you could bring the new the new environment online. You could do some selective testing if desired, and then if it works, cut over to it, and then simply turn the old one off and keep it there as an archive. If you need to roll back, simply turn it back on. But that's a standard. And 
I'm just starting to see teams adopt that. Does that, I, mean, I does that address you. your question about infrastructure? Yes. So the other thing about about support is um, it's interesting because I think that really does go back to some of the other technical practices that we haven't talked about. Although I I, I remember I made I made the mention about uh, about uh, James Shore doing his TDD for CSS, but you've got to invest in automation. So because you you need to assume that you want to deploy the software as fast as possible. Manual testing at any level of the test pyramid is not sustainable if you want to allow for rapid deployments. So the way you solve the quality problem and the bug problem, John, is you have automated tests and you you do TDD. Do you see teams taking ownership of their of their quality problems? I, I, I've noticed a trend and this is this trend has been there for many years. Anytime there's there's a segregation of responsibilities and duties. For instance, if I have if I have a quality assurance person on the team or a group that we interface with, all of a sudden quality goes down on the team because the the job of quality has been transitioned at least in in theory from the development team to this quality assurance team. And the same thing goes for like like production support or what I will call like on-call support for for a system. If there's if there's a group that's responsible for that, the focus on sustainability, the focus on scalability, the focus on bug-free high-quality code goes down because all of a sudden it's no longer the developer's responsibility. It's it's some production support team's responsibility or quality assurance team's responsibility. And the development team, the development group, is not sharing the pain equally that is incurred by them producing bugs, low-quality code, and pushing that out into the environment. And that's the particular aspect of DevOps that I see lacking in the conversations that are occurring in this space today. So can I ask you a question, John? Please. In those environments, how frequently do you release? Why is that? Why is that important? Because I think the key to this, and this was a theme I heard again in multiple sessions at the technical conference, was you. We say we can't have separated QA. You actually can have separate QA, but you've got to have a fast feedback loop. So I think where we're separate, where a separate QA branch can cause harm is when it becomes a follow-on phase of work that works at a large batch because that's when you lose the fast the, the fast feedback. And instead, if we say, we're going to commit to saying, we push stuff out the door, so we commit, we commit the code, we run our automated tests, and then before we go live, somebody in the QA department has to click through it at least once, and then they can click something, and it, it gets turned on for all the users. If we commit to doing that as fast as possible, meaning that the QA people will test it as soon as it's done, that can be successful. But the key thing there, John, is it's the fast feedback loop. Okay, so I, I now understand why that's an important question, and I agree with you. Uh, what I have noticed, though, is that in these situations, the the feedback loop is never fast. It's always extended. And that number of times that we are able to uh, push the button for deployment, even if it's just to an intermediary location, is extended. We we release less as a result of of having these of having these separations of concerns across quality assurance and production support. I think there's I think there's also a bit of overhead that gets uh, stuck into the process for each one of those layers. And by reducing the layers with kind of a DevOps kind of a um, structure, uh, I think a lot of that goes away. And so that also increases the time, the, the cycle time. The thing, and the thing That's I've right. been trying to drive towards Lee in, in the name of DevOps is to pull these responsibilities back. And even if it means that, that the development team takes more time to perform quality assurance within the space of of their work cycle what it does is it enables you at the end of that that quality assurance that the development team has done to then push the button on that particular feature 
minimal marketable feature story, et cetera, and say, deploy that with confidence because that person has taken the time to do it. And, and that person or that pair is now responsible for the quality of that code. And that is directly linked back to them should there be a problem and they will have to deal with it. And that's why I think that organizations that push to production many times a day or many times a week, such as the GitHubs of the world, et cetera, don't ex- that they're able to do that because the individuals are accountable and responsible for the quality. It hasn't been pushed well, off to some other unit, some other group. Well, or, to, or to be fair, John, because there are there are people who do who do push frequently that have that for whatever reason have separate QA or have secondary QA, like from a compliance standpoint. The key thing in all those environments is they have committed to saying we're going to release frequently, and so. If you commit to that as an organization, it's going to force you to figure out how to lean out your process so it works. And, and, have and that I, don't, cut- I don't think that DevOps necessarily means that you have to have a separate uh, organization or separate group that's doing it. Why can't DevOps be done by the team that's also writing the software? I mean, to be honest, I think there are some some worries with that too. But just because you say you're doing DevOps doesn't mean that you've got a separate unit doing it. No, yeah, I but think you guys that- know that. I think by definition, that is what DevOps means, is that we are, we are bringing that all under one roof. It's the development group's responsibility to operationalize everything, right? So they, they're responsible for quality. They're responsible for quality assurance. They're, they're responsible for dealing with scalability issues. They're responsible for dealing with quality issues that are now impacting users because we've we've pushed something out into the production space that's causing that problem it is it and that is the developers that feel that pain and we all know that the more pain we feel individually the more our natural reaction is to avoid that pain in the future by taking whatever steps are necessary i only need to grab the hot pot on the stove one time for my monkey brain, for my monkey brain to realize, my lizard brain to realize, not to grab hot pots on the stove. So maybe I misunderstood what you were saying. I thought you were you were objecting to the DevOps uh, thing because it was a separate unit. Did I miss that? Yeah, I, I, maybe not, and maybe okay. I maybe I misconveyed it. But what I was saying was that the hot, sexy side of DevOps in culture today revolves around the software, the, the soft, malleable nature of the infrastructure and less on the accountability of high quality products. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's right, John. And, and also from an org perspective, there are, there are elements of really the business side of a DevOps transformation that I think Lee is really, spe- or we're both, we're all speaking to here, which is that if you're, you know, why do we have, why do we have, off, why do we have offshore sustainment teams? You know, or outsource sustainment teams is because well, we we need our our high rate developers to go out and build the next awesome product. So we're gonna we're gonna outsource our sustainment because that couldn't be very important. So we'll hire a vendor at a lower rate. That's why that happens. And what we're saying, and if anyone's ever managed that, that doesn't go very well in many instances. It sometimes does go well to be out open out there. So I've seen it work successfully. But if you're gonna keep really embrace the full DevOps triangle. You're going to keep your, you need to ensure that the developers that maybe move on to a new project, they do have some capacity available and they're able to pivot back to support their prior work if needed. And hopefully since we've, since you've invested in test automation, automated deployments, managing your infrastructure as code, you're able to do that very quickly because it's like, hey, I could just spin up a new dev environment and I can test that little tweak real quickly. I don't have to, you know, submit a ticket and wait three, you know, wait three days for them to spin up an environment that I can actually test on. So you should be able to do that in an efficient manner. But the key thing is you do need to give the people autonomy to go back and do the support that we're talking about. One of the reasons, Jason, why I was so excited about the Phoenix project book, which you thankfully uh, led me to at one point was the fact that what that book really talked about was ownership of, of the project teams for, for all of these aspects of, of project delivery infrastructure, uh, the, the soft, the, the, the scripting of your deployment process. And then 
being responsible for production support, production operations, and high quality. That Those were the things that got me excited about it were those last three. Being responsible for production support, production operations, and high quality. To me, that was that was the secret sauce of the Phoenix Project book. Did I? Yeah, and I think, the, no, I think that's right, John. And the key thing about that, it, it, made people, it goes full circle because, again, kind of almost to close this out, it goes back to that whole thing Bob Martin said about innovation. And this is where, as developers, we should all be very thankful for the innovation that has occurred in the virtualized infrastructure or the infrastructure as code space. Because, you know, these days, guess what? If you've got a prod problem, I, I know we'll get pushback, but this is, Lee, here's, 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 this one's for you, okay? How to get people riled up. If you've got a prod problem, you should be able to say, give me a clone of prod so I can go hack around and figure out what the problem is. And then I can actually develop a fix test first in a clone of prod that then we can push to prod at zero risk. So, yeah, I want you to clone all of prod and give it to me in a, you know, in a version that I can consume in my dev environment so I can have less risk when I do that. The. The there's, DevOps- there's some there's some guy with uh, suspenders that just spit on his screen and his screen. <laughs> yeah. To this. Well, and to be fair, that's that's a very again, if you're if you're a, if you are a big if you're a big enterprise out there, we know we got lots of big enterprises in the world. That's hard because you got some stuff in your data center that probably you just can't virtualize and throw it on the cloud. But, you know, the newer folks, you know, the Twitters and GitHub's where they have a fully virtualized infrastructure, they can. So long term, we should all be working to say. You know, if we truly have to do prod support, a developer should be able to say, give me a hot clone of prod that I could work in and truly do a test first approach to fixing a critical support issue. And John, that gets us to where everyone's involved. And as a developer, you are empowered to go and do support the right way. I agree, Jason. And I think that does bring us full circle. And unfortunately, we're we're out of time for this episode to... to- oh. To extend this con- conversation any further, we'll, ha- we'll have to cut this off and maybe uh, put some of these future, some of these other agile technical conference topics that came up onto our backlog and we can pull from in a future yeah, episode. Yeah, I was, I was at a list. So the rundown of stuff that you missed that John's cutting us off. So we are going to do a three hour agile for human session tonight, apparently. We're going to do a short this agile life session, but things like no bugs. So Arlo Belshi did give some great tips about how to significantly reduce your bug count. And by the way, you know what? It has nothing to do with testing in many instances. It has to do with white space and method names. And of course, Luella was there, Woody was there. So we had um, we had some great mob programming sessions, both doing mobbing and Woody also talking about mobbing, including really just doing a Q&A about the mob that he ran at Hunter, which was the mob that got it all started. And the last thing that I just want to plug about the Agile Technical Conference was the... The lean coffees were amazing because of the people that were there Um, and people that I hope if you're at the big agile conference, like the Lisa Crispins and the Llewellyn Falcos and the Woody Zools and all of you guys, I hope you do show up to lean coffee at the agile conference because those conversations we had were just amazing at lean coffee each morning. So uh, just really, again, a, 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 a testament to the caliber of people on the program to present but then also people that just chose to attend the conference to learn from those who were there. This week's Hottest Picks. Lee, what do you have for your picks this episode? Well, I actually have been uh, looking at a lot of new uh, Android frameworks, and so I have a couple to suggest. Uh, One is Leak Canary. This is free uh, leak detection tool for Android. Uh, very cool. Uh, automatically uh, catches your uh, your uh, leaks from activities. And what's really cool, I actually uh, used Leak Canary to explain the no ops pattern to uh, to people because Leak Canary does a great job of of using the no ops pattern. Anyway, um, also Ice Pick, my second my second pick. <laughs> Uh, IcePick is a library that does your uh, your uh, basically whenever whenever you uh, rotate your screen in Android or you pause it, put something else up. It basically destroys the entire uh, activity and brings it back up. And it and it has to save its your state 
you have to save everything and bring it back from from nothing. And uh, so Ice Pick is a nice little library that does that entire serialization for you uh, in however deep and however complicated it needs to be. So that's a nice little uh, library as well. Great picks, Lee. Thanks. Jason, what do you have for your picks this episode? Okay, since it's that time of year, I'm going to do some live event picks. So first and foremost, actually, a suggestion I received from someone was I made a live events page on my website, The Agile Factor. So um, if you're interested in seeing where I'll be out and about at conferences doing stuff, that is now out there. Um, I made a list that I'm going to keep up to date through the rest of the year. And it currently has, I believe, seven upcoming live events at it all over the country. So join me at one of them. The other one says this is gonna this podcast is coming out in April 2016. If you do hear this in April 2016 and are interested, I am holding an open space in St. Louis, Missouri on Friday, April 22nd, 2016. Uh, it's in downtown St. Louis. We'll put the link to uh the website where you could register to join us. It's a little different format. We've actually got Thiaji, who's uh, actually he's also helping to keynote the Agile Games Conference, but he said he would come to St. Louis a little bit before that and help us with some activities for training and facilitation. So you get a keynote, you get a workshop. I'm going to break out the empathy toy. So you get that. And then, of course, it's open space. So who knows who else is going to show up and share something. So um, it'll be a great time on Friday, April 22nd, 2016. Join us in St. Louis if you are interested and available. And John, I think you're going to close it out. I am. But first, I think you better explain the empathy toy because you have to remember that Amos also listens to this show and he will somehow turn that into a dirty something or another. We should do the empathy toy on the (laughs) podcast. We actually could. I just need to distribute it to you guys. I could ship you one, John, or we'll ship Amos one. What the empathy toy is, um, it's a 21toys.com. It is a wooden puzzle that you typically solve with a blindfold on. And so it you have to feel it and kind of figure out how to put it together. And uh, I'll put the web, plus I'll make this a bonus pick to go check out the video that's online for it, this. It's still sounding dirty to me. I agree. Yeah. This is getting worse every minute. <laughs> We need- it involves, yeah, it involves a blindfold and a wooden puzzle and feeling how to put it together and guiding your partner to be successful. So you guys have dirty minds is all I can say. So that is true. Anyways, come, come check it out at the St. Louis Agile open space and uh, you'll get to experience the empathy toy for yourself. So, um, I mean, for yeah, that, Amos- for that reason alone, you should go to the, the St. Louis Agile open space. So I, I think you're going to have a massive crowd. Don't I'm make not me sure break I up want an open toy. space for that. I, I think I need a private space. Well, it's it was very safe. So, um, uh, and I will share. We've done empathy toy with a whole bunch of people in St. Louis, including a bunch of executives recently. Actually, got executives from a few companies that have done it. So, I think we've done it with more executives than we've done it with teams. So, uh, it's interesting that we're rolling it out in the local market here. So, did you get video? Uh, yes, I have some videos uh, that okay, have so, shown up. So, you have good, uh, good. Uh, way to uh to blackmail them right yes we'll make sure it shows material i think lee the next team you're on i think we will have to show up at your team inception i'll (laughs) I'll see if i can arrange for that and we'll get some disagile life yeah but no kidding we should actually do it on the podcast because it is a there is a communication game you could play with it and it would just be fascinating to let people hear this i think yeah puzzles puzzles make for great podcasting i have no what's (laughs) What's funny is because it is a visual activity, truly there could be no cheating if we turn Skype off because we can't see. So it truly, people would hear what happens and much hilarity would assume would, would follow probably. All right. So as Jason said, I've got the last pick. I'll go ahead and, cl- and close the show out with my pick. If, uh, if you're listening to this, as Jason said, in April 2016, there's been a lot of, you will, you will probably be aware that there's been a lot of activity from Amazon uh, with their Echo hardware as well as the Alexa software that goes along with it. And Amazon has released something called the dot as well as the tap. And those are new hot products from Amazon that are out there in the space. And I'm proud to say that I'm part of a, a project where we've recently integrated our, uh, the Sensi Wi-Fi thermostat with the Amazon echo. So you can say things to it like Alexa set my temperature to 72 degrees. And it's just really a cool thing. And I'm on this big internet of things kick now and I'm like getting Wi-Fi garage door openers and, and I'm really going over the top with it. But I just wanted to uh, recommend the Sensi Wi-Fi thermostat. 
from Emerson Electric here in St. Louis, Missouri. You can check them out at sensicomfort.com. Jason, you're just, open, you have a big grin on your face. What, what's, what's wrong? At the open space, we're going to have a hack mob and we're going to hack into John's house and open his garage door opener and set his thermostat <laughs> up to a thousand degrees. We're going to show you all the risk you're incurring by perhaps adopting the Internet of Things too early. Okay, bring it on. Oh, yes. <laughs> all right, that's all we have for this episode of This Agile Life. Check us out at thisagilelife.com for our show notes. And for these great picks and for all of our past episodes, thanks for listening and keep living this agile life. This agile life is brought to you by a community of agile developers and coaches aspiring to spread the word about this groundbreaking approach to software development. Join us at thisagilelife.com forward slash community.